Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lorna Simpson. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is showing Focus Lorna Simpson through January 15th. The exhibition features new Simpsons that juxtapose beauty and promise with disaster and upheaval, often in the context of the representation of black women in Ebony Magazine from the 1950s to the 1970s. It was curated by Allison Hurst. Simpson was also included in the recent The Uses of Photography, Art, Politics, and the Reinvention of a Medium, which just closed at the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego. The Uses of Photography examined artists affiliated with UCSD as faculty and students between the 1960s and 1980s in the ways in which they opened photography to a range of conceptual strategies and subjects. Simpson earned her MFA at UCSD. The Uses of Photography was curated by Jill Dawsey. Lorna Simpson has been featured in solo exhibitions at the Jeux de Palme Paris, the Brooklyn Museum, the Walker Art Center, the Studio Museum in Harlem, MoCA, and the Whitney Museum of American Art. She was also included in Documenta's 8 and 11, and in the 44th and 56 Venice Biennales. One quick note before we get to my conversation with Lorna Simpson. Those of you who download the show via iTunes or an RSS feed may have noticed that last week's show never came through. Our account with our syndicator was the target of a username and password attack. It only got cleared up yesterday. And instead of sending you a potentially confusing set of two episodes in two days, on a Wednesday and on a Thursday, we thought we'd send both last week's and this week's show through RSS and iTunes today. The show's been up on SoundCloud all week. Sorry about that. Lorna Simpson for the full program, after the break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. It is easier than ever to explore art historical texts from the comfort of your home with the Getty Research Portal. This online catalog provides free access to books and journals from libraries and museums all over the world, including new editions such as the Art Institute of Chicago's Ryerson and Burnham Libraries, the Herzog August Bibliothèque in Wolfenbüttel, and the Warburg Institute Library in London, resulting in over 100,000 volumes available. To explore the Getty Research Portal, visit portal.getty.edu. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents... Dimensions of Black, a collaboration with the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art, at its downtown location through April 30th. Drawn from the museum's holdings, 
This exhibition of more than 30 works by African-American artists from the 1960s to today traverses crucial interests and perspectives that have shaped the art of our time. The collaboration presents a series of accompanying programs throughout the exhibition. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And we're back. Lorna Simpson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're going to start with the show in Fort Worth. It includes a good bit of new work. The show continues a certain juxtaposition of beauty and disaster that's been in your work in recent years. And to kind of explain that a little bit more, maybe a good way into that idea is to ask you about two artworks that are hanging next to each other in Fort Worth. Those two pieces start with, I think... 2013's collage Famous Statue, a found photograph and collage on paper. Real quickly, what is that 2013 piece? What does it show? And what were you exploring back then in 2013 with it? In 2013, I started making these kind of photo collages, kind of on a whim, just in collecting, which I collect a lot of photographic imagery of all sorts in different kinds of ways, kind of spanning, I guess, the past century or so. And in that collection of images, started using them collage and combining them with advertisements, images, or heads out of Ebony and Jet magazine. So that particular collage comes from the kind of beginning of that series of works and basically is probably a press photo from a museum exhibition of a particular statue and then kind of collaged on top of it is a head of probably a model was kind of modeling it for an ad for wigs from Ebony Magazine, kind of superimposed as a collage on top of that image in terms of replacing the head, and named it a Famous Statue. In 2016, you decided to revisit this image in at least two paintings, two are in the show in Fort Worth. They are titled Famous Statue Dam, with an N, and Famous Statue Volcano. So why last year did you choose to revisit the 2013 collage? Well, actually, I think about a year or a year and a half ago, I did kind of attempt to make a painting with that of that particular image, and I hated it. <laughs> it did not come out right. So I kind of turned it back <laughs> uh, or turned the face of it to the wall in my studio and just said, okay, just take a breath from that and like just step away from it for a minute and then return to it, I guess, about a year or so later as an idea because it, it, it seemed as though I just wasn't, it was the execution or something and it wasn't making sense, but I thought still the idea after waiting about a year was still valid. And in the opportunity for the exhibition in Fort Worth, I decided to revisit that, making that painting again. But then stepping back and going, okay, I'm going to make two paintings. The first one didn't come out, but the next two are going to be fabulous. But also then superimposing that image of that collage onto another image. So the work Famous Statue Dam and Famous Statue Volcano have kind of silkscreened two images. One is of one is of a dam as in kind of river and the kind of control of water. And the other one is of an erupting volcano. And then this famous statue collage is silkscreened again then on top of those images. And that became this kind of suite or pair of images that I think correlate one is water, one is fire in that sense in terms of elements, but in terms of kind of tensions and control and what one can control and not control of having this kind of formidable statue in these two scenarios. 
Am I reading the beauty disaster dichotomy dichotomy correctly, or is it less disaster? You know, like than this word, I mean, particularly the show. Sorry, particularly the show in Fort Worth. It's new, so in some ways, for me, even at this point of having this conversation now. I think that's an interesting observation. I think the work is still new to me. So in some ways, yes, I see it as these layers in terms of taking in kind of this 2016, more of the past couple of years in terms of living in America and, and somewhat my response to that. And at the same time, since it's such recent work for me now, I don't have a concise kind of speech for it at this moment. But it is, I could say, reflective of how I feel at this moment. I I probably should have established this sooner, but I'm guessing you finished these two works before the first Tuesday in November. Correct. Right. So they're not they're not intended specifically. <laughs> right. No, they're not intended though. No. They were before yes. Exactly. They're not in response to our current president elect. But But maybe the tension yes, it, they, of exactly the beauty of and the, what's going on back there is an engagement with a campaign or, 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 or a national True, exactly. The, yeah, the national campaign uh for the office was quite something. Yes. Now, one more thing before moving on from these two specific works, although I want to stay in this kind of beauty disaster dichotomy for a moment. In the collage in 2013 and in these works, you leave in, if that's the right phrase, kind of the editing crop marks around or or crop marks around the head, around the photograph you you collaged in, um, which is something you do a good bit. Why is it important to you to leave in those marks? You know, I, I see them now as completely three-handed marks kind of artistically. But I guess when I was in my 20s, I worked as a graphic designer kind of pre, uh, during pre-digital times, kind of doing layout copy for a newspaper or kind of designing pages for a travel brochure company. And the kind of language of deletion and cropping and what's included in the image and, and what's not included in the image as a system of signs was one that I was very familiar with. So in some ways, I kind of see them now as gestural, but they are also a kind of language that speaks to kind of graphic design and the language of print in a way that is probably on my part, given my age, like a certain kind of nostalgia in terms of uh, graphic design. But now in looking back at it, they kind of uh, are beautifully gestural marks. I mentioned a moment ago that that it's it's been a couple of years now that you've been playing with this kind of you know what I'm identifying as this kind of beauty disaster paradox or juxtaposition or whatever the word is. In in 2015 you made some works that include references to bullet holes. What did you I don't know if this is quite the right word, but what did you pair the bullet holes with and why were bullet holes a motif that seemed useful? Well, I don't know if they're useful, but they were certainly in response to kind of all the police shootings and um, killings that had been taking place, I guess, in an increased amount over the past five years, so or seven years uh, in the United States. So part of that use of the bullet hole was one of the kind of frequency in which news media, but also in terms of social media, they're kind of recording and evidence of um, these killings. So, you know, I kind of pair the bullet holes with a dress that has these polka dots to 
I'm kind of forgetting now um, all the different there might uh, have been a plaid. versions. There might have been a plaid, a reference to a plaid textile. No, I think there's a, a polka dot. I guess I'll just stick with that one. <laughs> that it has holes and like the holes from the polka dots are bleeding ink and the bullet holes are also bleeding ink. What I was awkwardly and, and rather incompetently trying to ask is why, given what was going on and given, given the police killings, why is it you chose bullet holes as your way into that idea? Other artists, you know, so for example, Carrie James Marshall in 2015, maybe early 2016, when he wanted to make a work about the police killings, he made a faux portrait of a black police officer. You chose bullet holes. So why was, I mean, were there other ways into the idea you considered before before landing on that one? Well, I, don't, I think, to be honest with you, the idea... I think I was working somewhat intuitively, and that idea of the bullet holes and kind of looking at all these dots and the kind of pattern in this dress made me think of that. And in terms of, like, in some ways, the way that I work with some of these panel pieces as paintings is that I kind of gather a bunch of images of different sorts of kind of desperate, different origin and then kind of compare them and uh, contrast them. So it wasn't um, an idea of, as a big idea, oh, I want to make something about the killings, but kind of in pairing different images and playing around with images that I just kind of gravitated towards, that pairing kind of suggested that to me. So, yeah, it's kind of, I guess, from the kind of micro-small level in terms of of thinking about um, the relationship of these images rather than a larger, more statement idea. It's kind of, I work kind of the reverse. The next piece in Fort Worth I'd like to ask about is a painting called Shift. Um, I should note that these works are on, on clayboard, which for, for non-artists is a material that's uh, super smooth, very absorbent. It's, it's basically a wood panel with a clay finish or, or surface. There are two panels here. They're, they're out of alignment, and there's a reference to a magazine page at the very bottom. And the image, if you will, in, in, in the middle is kind of uh, white and brushy. And what is that white? I mean... For some reason, there is uh, this kind of iconic image or image that has become iconic in terms of just my rationale right now of an iceberg, which is really, I think, just not so much an iceberg, but um, frost or ice that's kind of formed on the branches of a tree or bush. And kind of in repeating that image, shift is that image then painted over with white paint and uh, the image itself that's printed on four panels to comprise one image is slightly shifted out of alignment. So that object, for lack of a better word, in the middle very much reads as an iceberg. Is it at all an an engagement with Frederick Church and his landmark iceberg painting from 1861, which refers to kind of, or is often read by historians as referring to the the melting, the dissolution, the, the drift of the Union? Interesting. I know that painting, and I... It, that's interesting. I mean, that, this is like icebergs in a way, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It happens to be at the Dallas Museum of Art, in fact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've seen that painting. I mean, maybe so. I think in some ways, just as a formal object, for some reason, I find it to be really beautiful. But then also its fragility. It's also something that is part of the materiality 
of, of its kind of representation. But, you know, I think, I think it also kind of then, in respect to that painting, then the shift of time or kind of this eventual occurrence that will happen because of the, because it's ice, right? So, I don't know. There is something that kind of repeats. Even there are other paintings that have these kinds of ice formations that are turned into hair formations or kind of design with these other paintings. So it seems to be something just within that kind of period of time that I kind of employed as this object that could stand alone, but also kind of gets incorporated in different ways in other paintings. Again, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny to do this interview right now because I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that in some ways there's something about that show that to me is interesting and provocative and is kind of using a different kind of visual language um, that I haven't used before. So, yeah, that's about all I can say about it at this point. The paintings you're referring to are four paintings installed in a group in a line together on a wall titled Head on Ice, number one, number two, number three, number four. Um, they're all also from, from 2016. This is a, a weird question, but and I, and I understand, obviously, that, that you've made work referring to hair and wigs for 30 years, but why did you decide to put ice on top of people's heads? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. That. I mean, I think it's also, you know, the title or the kind of that kind of deliberate collage somewhat comes from a meditation just on the title of the uh, Eldridge Cleaver's book, Soul on Ice, and kind of thinking about that book this, protect, this past or in 2016. So I could say that's what was on my mind, and certainly the play on the title had something to do with that book. But yeah. That's, that would be kind of the most concrete reference that I could give that. I love the slippery, hard-to-identify references. They're the most fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there's also in, um, not in the Head on Ice paintings, but, but in, in Shift, uh, this, this move you, you've used before, maybe for the first time in 2015, of taking um, these panels and moving one of them above the other. So... So shift nor three figures, which you showed at the Venice Biennale in 2015, are rectangular. They are just off rectangular. I'm describing this horribly. We'll have pictures on manpodcast.com. Why, why is shifting half of or a third of a rectangle up above the rest of the rectangle an interesting move to you? Well, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, the opportunity in terms of working with these panels and kind of working with them on the floor, working, you know, putting them up is the opportunity to either make them confer, conform to being aligned or not. And in playing with them and kind of just physically handling the studio, it seemed to offer up opportunities that I didn't have to kind of keep them in the kind of tightly gridded symmetrical alignment and that uh, in some ways fracturing the image at certain points for certain um, work seemed to be a more interesting approach to resolving how it gets hung or resolving how it finally gets presented. Probably worth pointing out that artists buy clayboard in pre-made panel sizes. So when you're making a work, you can use two of them or four of them or 12 of them. or, And so that's what you're referring to, I think. Am I right? Correct. There are these kind of art, art supply store, very simple, engineered gesso panels or clayboard panels on wood um, panels. So they're very simple. 
and they come in a multitude of different kinds of sizes, even custom sizes. But um, yeah, I mean, I think because of the early work, also the formation of a kind of grid, earlier felt works, in some ways, that formal quality is something I'm really familiar with and have worked with before. So, so somewhat like the felt panels, I incorporated that same kind of formal device um, with the clay boards. And my understanding is, is, I'm not an artist, but my understanding is clayboard takes ink in a really interesting way. It, it's both absorbent, but it allows it to run a little bit. Yes, I mean, you know, I mean, ink does not come with every surface, even if it's just gesso that's polished or by hand or um, finely polished by hand, it does that. But because of the viscosity of the ink and the way that it runs and bleeds and dilutes or solidifies or in terms of different layers, it becomes very condensed and iridescent. Um, is a quality that I like about the ink itself. Um, so that's become kind of the tool of mine in terms of preferred media, medium in terms of working on these paintings is that they are with ink. At least at the moment, because as we'll discuss in a few minutes, you are quite medium fluid. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mentioned three figures a moment ago. You showed it in Venice. It's it's my favorite of, 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 of all your recent work. It's a pretty thrilling thing full of illusions, say, including to the three graces. I, I guess maybe could we start on that artwork by your describing it a little bit? It's actually based on an AP news photo from Mississippi in, I think, 1958, um, which is a famous image uh, from the civil rights era of three individuals, I think two women and one man, being hosed down by police. While they're holding hands. With a fire hose. While they're, they're, yeah, trying to hold hands. And, and so one of them has been shifted downward by, by your installation and breaking of the rectangle. So it's a first. Did you intend the reference to the three graces, or, or the or the allusion to the three graces? Well, for me, that image is an iconic image within the civil rights era. It also, in terms of the way that it looks, to me, looks like three dancers, too. So it does have certainly these kind of outstretched hands, and the gestural quality of the bodies could suggest many different things. And there's a certain beauty and grace to that. But the reality of what the image is is kind of a kind of contradictory to me. I mean, it does employ grace, but at the same time, it's kind of uh, the describes because it's an old photo and because it's not that sharp and because it's taken kind of from a, a small image that has a lot of uh, reproduction noise or bende dot in it, um, it gets distorted when blown up very large, but is a description of kind of violence during the civil rights era against protesters. As a young girl, you were yourself a dancer. Is there a certain autobiographical reference in your thinking of the figures looking like they're dancing? No, I mean, there's a piece that I made called Momentum that is maybe more exactly that in terms of it being an autobiographical piece that is about my personal relationship to dance. But for this piece, I would say no. No, it was just how you chose to describe it at that moment. Yeah, because so many people don't, not unless you remember or are familiar with that particular image, I think people then see it as something else. So it's it depends on the, one's vocabulary of visual imagery from a particular 
time period in American history as if one picks up on it as a protest image or, or something else. I had read it as a as a as a specific reference to to um, a classical idea of the three graces and aligning protest and the movement with with that history, saying that this history is as beautiful and as timeless as is you know that Greek Greek Roman Roman uh, whichever right, it is idea. Right. right. Yeah. So once you decide to play with an image that loaded and historical. How do you, as an artist with a brush in your hand or whatever, begin to engage with it in ink and decide how your painterly engagement should look and work and feel? Actually, it's kind of, I choose images to work with and play with them. But in terms of, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I think when I think of uh, my process as an artist, a lot of it kind of starts out with these kind of more conceptual ideas or just a singular idea about the pairing of images. But certainly this this foray, which I started as a painter in undergraduate school, but this foray into painting at this point is very like I just do it and kind of step back. It's It's gestural... But it's kind of like riding a bike. Not that I'm really great at it, but it's <laughs> it's something that I cannot overdetermine. It's kind of like I have to think. I think about it for a little bit, and then I kind of just do it. To be honest with you, and that is an interesting difference than the kind of other kind of conceptual work that I make that is highly determined from beginning to end in terms of production. There is a bit of like, okay, let's just see how this, you know. Okay, just do it, and kind of working in the ink is very fast on certain levels, and I have to kind of just work in the moment very intuitively. So for me, I don't. I think there, there's been, and kind of in doing this, and this is kind of new work for me, there's a level of experimentation, but also a level of immediacy in terms of what the ink does or kind of making marks by hand on a surface. But I feel that it's the combination of kind of the conceptual framework that is, uh, the basis of the images that kind of makes this more gestural quality also work. Is it important in, in, in this work in particular that the ink looks fluid and viscous and almost like water? Yes, because I want the ink to read as ink <laughs> in that way, or, you know, the kind of density of it. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, that's part of the quality of why... I like it in that particular way. I'm, I'm going to ask another historian question. Sorry, but one of the other things I read in, into this work is a possible reference to the American tradition of Niagara paintings and the way in which artists in the mid-19th century used Niagara as a metaphor for all kinds of things happening in America, whether those things were, were the country moving west or the disaster of the Civil War in 1862 for the North. Are you interested in 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 that particular tradition? Is there any Niagara here? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think there's Niagara in that. But maybe in this thing of a kind of a, a natural, quote-unquote, natural formation as a starting point to then, I don't know, make suggestions towards political climates? Maybe so. Maybe so. I'm always interested in the way in which ideas from art history become so embedded in our subconscious that sometimes artists touch upon them without 
consciously whipping out a Frederick Church or a, or a Georgia. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'd, I'd have to go those, back and look yeah. at that <laughs> yeah. to, to, to see if I, if I see that. My guest is Lorna Simpson. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Degas, A New Vision, the most significant international survey of the work of Edgar Degas in nearly 30 years. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, assembled from public and private collections around the world. Opens October 16th exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Degas for more. The critically acclaimed major retrospective Francis Picabia, Our Heads Are Round, so our thoughts can change direction, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Quote, The show has a propulsive, joyous energy, says the New York Times. New York Magazine calls it a blast of fresh air just when we need it. Also on view is the powerful new exhibition, A Revolutionary Impulse, The Rise of the Russian Avant-Garde. Plan your visit today. More information and tickets are available at MoMA.org. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents... The first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hirshhorn, visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. And now back to my conversation with Lorna Simpson. So in a number of the paintings in the last few years in which you use ink, it it reads kind of as if it's flowing top to bottom, almost in veils. And the effect to the viewer, at least to me, is, is elegiac or dolorous. Is that just the way the medium is or is that uh, or is there a conceptual intent to that, to that kind of feeling of sadness? In, in terms of the works, I would say that there, over the past few years, has been a kind of broad spectrum of emotional responses that I've had to different things, either in my uh, personal life or kind of much more largely in a kind of political um, landscape. And I wouldn't say it was all happy, and I wouldn't say that it's all, some, some of it is desperate, some of it is, yeah, I, I would say... Melancholy is not the right word. It's more strongly maybe adrift and uh, despair. But I think within these bodies of work and kind of working in ink has kind of opened up in the process of making this work and kind of being confronted with this kind of as the end point or uh, the step towards kind of finishing works off uh, in these series does kind of forced me as an artist to be in the studio and kind of just work with the emotions that I have that particular day in a very kind of raw manner that I think in other works kind of prior to this, there is this kind of artificial distance that I can kind of create in terms of what the, how it gets executed and kind of what my state of mind, I would say, would be or needed to be in order to kind of complete different work. And I kind of found over these past two or three years that given the range of emotions I would walk into the studio with that I could not control that so that 
if I was angry about something or sad or distraught, I kind of had to, just given the process, I had to uh, accept being in that mode or in that state, which is kind of a new thing for me in terms of the work. I would say that I generally more a separation between kind of my emotional life and the way that the work gets ex- executed, not so much in terms of its meaning, but certainly in terms of in the moment when I'm making it that sort of thing. So I think that kind of has carried over in kind of this use of ink, if that kind of answers. That's really interesting, I think, because in, you know, in the art world, when we think of conceptually rooted work, we tend to think of a certain intellectual distance and chilliness, and you're describing your, your willingness, your joy, your interest in marrying emotion with conceptualism, which isn't or the kind of unavoidable. Yeah. <laughs> I found myself in an unavoidable situation. It's like, well, I really don't have time to like come back and do this when I'm feeling great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um... Let's just get to work with feeling shitty and like let's just do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've been talking about ink a lot, but it hasn't occurred to me until just now to ask, how did you come to start working with it? Why did you pick ink? I think maybe like about ten years ago, I started doing these small drawings from based on a video work that I had made and which I it's of the title I can't remember right now but um just thought some of the characters in this kind of found footage would be interesting singled out and I thought well it's not that interesting to just reproduce them as drawings and as I mean as photographs or as digital images from uh, stills from this kind of 16 millimeter found footage but to do something else with them and I was kind of I had just come out of doing a lot of film and video projects and just wanted an opportunity to do something meditative, not so much for showing it that would become work, so to speak, um, that I would show, but just as a different way to kind of ignite my imagination in other directions by forcing myself to do something that's completely unfamiliar. And... You know, I picked up cray paws, I picked up oil sticks, I picked up a what you, uh, charcoal, and like just went through, like went to an art supply store in the neighborhood and kind of just picked up a bunch of different things and came across ink. And ink seemed to be really not so much watercolor, but ink became this very quick kind of fun medium to kind of just play with, and that stuck. And that's what, that's how I arrived to that because of its simplicity and I didn't feel like, oh, I have to learn how to draw or paint again. I was like, can I just, let me just use something that's easy for me to play with, basically. Well, along with ink in the work has come maybe a greater abstraction in in your work, both in kind of the washes surrounding the the screen prints of, of archival photographs and other documents that we've been talking about, but also in a, in a painting such as Enumerated, which features um, nails in groups of five, one, two, three, four, and with the fifth being a diagonal, you know, kind of that crude way of marking, uh, of counting or marking the passage of time. And there's also, you know, another uh, abstract passage in recent work includes the the ink splatters in Fort Worth. And it, it seems to me that in recent years, you've been using abstraction or the idea of abstraction in the context of painful or, or socio-cultural subjects. Was there anything, a work of literature, painting, something else that opened the door to using abstraction as a tool to address socio-cultural stuff? 
you know, and being aware, of course, of the artists that employ that as well. But I think in since I do have an interest and always have in terms of photography and this kind of very concrete image in a way that gets dissected, uh, dissected and re-examined or recontextualized, that in the process of working with inks or kind of adding my hand kind of offered the opportunity to work abstractly because why would I then try to by hand create another image that is just as kind of quote-unquote real or kind of photorealism, which I'm not really that um, interested in. So I, th- I think it's also just a product also of kind of where the work is conceptually, but thinking about, well, what, what is the use of my hand and why would my, my hand doesn't, since my interests are photography or imagery in a certain kind of way that I didn't need to employ my hand to also act as a form of reproduction for that. I mean, in some ways, piece Black Nebula has ink just over, kind of black ink over areas that is this kind of nebula, which is kind of a gaseous star system, uh, kind of that is in a very detailed way painted in black ink in kind of layers so that it becomes raised on the panel. But that is a kind of abstracted, it looks abstracted, but actually is based on photographic imagery. So there's different ways, I think, in terms of my hand that I play with that. But again, its abstraction kind of ends up in the kind of conceptual framework to me and less a kind of traditional mode of um, abstraction. So here's where we turn back the clock a little bit. You have uh, always, well, almost always anyway, had an acute ambivalence about medium. You've made film installations and paintings and photographs, and I could keep going. That's a lot of range for someone who started out in street photography, which by the time you started it in the early 80s-ish was a pretty long-established thing. Had you stopped doing street photography when you went to grad school at the University of California, San Diego in the early to mid-1980s, or was it there that you moved on from it? Well, I think, I mean, when I was in undergraduate school, I took it School of Visual Arts in New York? Yeah, at School of Visual Arts in New York, I took as many film classes as I could with Joan Braderman, who was teaching kind of history of film. And I guess at the same time of doing street photography, the kind of thinking about French New Wave film and the kind of a more conceptual look at the way one looks at film and to be able to think about time-based imagery and relationship of sound and image when I was in undergraduate school was fascinating to me. But at that time, and given that it wasn't uh, digital, I was kind of amazed by it and a filmaholic in a way uh, of going to the movies all the time. And I think that experience primed me for kind of thinking about once I got out of undergraduate school, thinking about what else would I do with photography, with kind of some of the conceptual framework behind cinema as part of the way that I thought about image making. So I think that's kind of more the trajectory. And then by the time I get into graduate school, I then started to thinking, thinking about photography and kind of image and time-based imagery much more. One of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm bringing up your UCSD past is there was just a big exhibition about, about the role UC San Diego played in in the growth of conceptual oriented art around photography 
uses of photography at the MCA San Diego. You were one of a number of Brooklynites who, who ended up at UCSD. Who recommended that you move out there? And do you know why she urged you to go out there? I was, I had gotten out of college, out of SVA early, and probably about six or seven months early. And I was doing graphic design. And I remember that I was visiting a friend and there was about to be a meeting, I think of the Kamonge workshop, but I was really, really young and I was not staying for the meeting. Like I wasn't a member, I wasn't staying, but I think Carrie had arrived Carrie and Mays. met her, Carrie May Wings, and, and we spoke and she said, oh, well, you should think about going to graduate school. And I said, really? And it was like December, maybe it was January, December or January. And it was rainy and snowy and slushy and horrible. And she said, yeah, it's Southern California. It's like a half an hour from Mexico and there's beach. And I was like, really? Like, I did not care who took out there. I was just like, that would be nice what I'm doing right now. So she said, oh, you should go to CAA, which is happening in the spring. And you should, you know, here's uh, the contact information. Why don't you just, you know, make an appointment, go visit them and apply. And I did, and like miraculously, I got in that fall. But it was really a lark. It was completely like, I am so sick of being in New York. I can't stand it. I'm doing like this kind of work. I can't stand it. <laughs> it's funny. It never, it never reads quite that larky in, in, in history of the I, moment. Completely. Right? I, I had no idea who taught that and did not care. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite the different experience of my daughter going off to college now. It's like last year was fraught with you know, how are you making this decision and how important it is? And I was just like, wow, I don't quite remember making decisions of all that import. Uh, it was kind of just, wow, well, this sounds good. Let's try that. And Carrie Mae Weems was only a year ahead of you. So she, it's not like she had been there or was being, a, was working as a GA and was recruiting you. She, she was only a year ahead of you in the exactly. program. Exactly. Exactly. But, but also she had lived in California. So I think even for her, although it might've been and she, I guess, yeah, I, I, she lived in Los Angeles, I think, at before that time. So California was a very kind of natural experience for her. For me, that was like a huge deal to kind of go to the West Coast and just culturally of being a New Yorker and living in um, Southern California. But it was great. It was a great opportunity. I would say it was a kind of isolated existence there and found myself like going to Los Angeles a lot and to San Francisco and to New York because I just felt like it was too small a fishbowl in some ways. But it did uh, afford me the opportunity to kind of think about the kind of work I wanted to make. So my follow-up question to that, I wrote, you know, a couple of weeks ago before you answered that question in a much more larky way than, than I expected. <laughs> but does any of your street photography beginnings stick with you now? Does any of that still exist in the studio when you work? I mean, it does on Instagram. <laughs> oh, I'm just snapshots that I take. Oh my gosh. Um, I was so busy looking uh, for your Vimeo page, I didn't think of that. I don't know. I mean, it's visual language. I mean, I find there's so much to the history of photography and media and the way that the uses of photography and the way that photography is employed, that the language of that is interesting to me. So it may be street photography or maybe advertising or it may be, you know, all these different 
genres that are really just kind of culturally how we decipher the meaning or the kind of authorship or the way that the image, quote unquote, speaks to us. So I find it to be a kind of very central and interesting medium that is that in working in video or working in film, that I can kind of speak that language fairly well visually because of because of my interest in kind of deep knowledge of that medium, having worked in it for so long. So we've been talking for 45 minutes and I and, and neither of us has mentioned text. You became famous through many series of, of works that included text on more or less an equal level with, with the visuals um, that the text was paired with. You've substantially moved away from including text with your work in recent years. Was that intentional or did that just kind of happen? I think for a certain body of work, there is a point where I intentionally move away from a particular body of work just to kind of be inventive on my own in terms of my own relationship to the work. So I never say never in terms of uh, what the work does or what skills I can employ. I never say never. I mean, maybe at some point I will return to the kind of employment of the text. It just, I feel that in looking back at my own work, that there are different areas that I've mined or I've gone through and they kind of recirculate again, or they kind of start to behave differently or I reemploy them. So that's the kind of beauty of uh, the career that it allows me to look back at what I've done, not to repeat it, but in a way it's kind of in hindsight, you go, oh my goodness, that's connected to that. So at the moment, it kind of shows up in bits and pieces as part of found material from uh, appropriated images that already contain text. But who knows? I, it's, it's such an important, it still is an important part of my thinking in terms of the relationship of language. So maybe again at some other point. At, at the risk of asking a really broad question, do you think of there having been particular writers who motivated you during the years you were working on the text pieces? I mean, your daughter's name is, 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 is one pretty good hint, Zora. But were there others who, who you think of now as having been particularly important to those works? It's so rare we get to ask artists about writers, so. <laughs> I mean, you know, of course, James Baldwin, of course, Toni Morrison. I mean, when I think of the scope and the span of African-American writers, I would say that had a lot to do with my interest in language of how they all took the structure of language and the kind of scope of all the different meanings that can, of the way things are said in intonation and kind of the layered meanings to words or uh, to phrases as poetry, but also as a kind of political tool to talk about lives and to talk about America. So I think that does have and continues to have a huge influence on me and the work. So I'm, I'm a writer and I worry that sometimes my words, I, I worry that sometimes it sounds too much like I'm trying to sound like, you know, Joan Didion or something. Do you, when you made those works, did you ever worry about sounding too much like Toni Morrison or when you look back at them now, do you think about that? No, I don't think they look like <laughs> God forbid I would try that. No, I don't think they resemble that work at all. But there's a languidity to the language. There's a, I mean, you know, in those text pieces, you, you have such a rich, beautiful way with words and phrasing and how phrases go on top of each other. And 
I mean, they're really literary and, and so you're sloughing it off, but, but there is. No, but I, I would never stuff. think that they would equate that. <laughs> that's why I'm like, oh, like please, no. Know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I never, I mean, in, in some ways I, I thought of the ways that I, at my best, would try to merge, like, uh, as a young adult or even in high school, or I guess most of them, I always kind of wrote poetry or, or prose. And I think in my early years as being an artist, I, was, I realized why not try to melt these two things. The subsequent work that came kind of from late, late 80s and the 90s was an attempt to, to merge those two interests. And, or those two things that had kind of occupied my young adult life. And finally, you have throughout your, almost your entire career, maintained an interest in women's hair and especially in wigs. We haven't talked about it yet. There are the, the, the um, head on ice images at the Modern in Fort Worth kind of dabble in the area, if you will. I don't want to ask you why you make work about hair and wigs. People have been asking you that for decades. <laughs> But I do want to know if you if you yourself think about why that idea, topic, subject has held your attention throughout your career and whether you've been tempted to move on from it, but but just haven't and don't. I think there are other things that I do work about. Totally, <laughs> totally. But that this, have but, nothing to do with that. But I guess it does slide in there in kind of different ways because in some ways, and within American culture, particularly for women of African descent, that hair becomes or is this kind of somewhat unavoidable spectrum of political, I guess, attention, or it draws attention. So even if I'm not thinking about making a piece about hair, and like, for instance, I was, which there are many works that have nothing to do with that, but um, in doing a piece called Momentum, which... Um, I mentioned earlier it's a video piece about ballet. Unavoidably, my experience as a young child, maybe like around 10 or 11 years old, and performing kind of classical ballet or on-point performance at Avery Fisher Hall was in a gold afro and gold body paint and gold toe shoes. So one would say, well, is that about hair? Part of it, the reconstruction of it, even retrospect and looking back at that moment and even as a child that was kind of incredible to look at oneself in the mirror and see oneself transformed in this gold afro and gold body paint from head to toe so it was also very Vegas in its audacity in a way but that was kind of part of the late mid or late 70s the climate so I can't say that I can separate out for myself at certain points that it's just it's just this kind of obsession with beauty and with hair when so much of my day-to-day experience is kind of informed around that so in getting out of graduate school and working at the NEA in the arts administration I had like a internship in arts administration at the NEA in DC in Washington DC they were all, because it's a government agency, there were all these rules and regulations in and around corn braids and braids and kind of professional attire and rules against the way black women could wear their hair 
if you wanted to work for the government. So it, in some ways, it's not for me just a trope, but it seems to enter the work because um, so much of my own appearance or my experience in terms of whether it is within a costume for a dance recital or sitting at, at a desk for fairly um, ubiquitous kind of arts administrative uh, job, which is quite dry and a little boring in D.C., something about that comes up. So I would only say that that it's maybe just part and parcel of my own personal experience. And when I look back or I even look to now, it's a very vibrant constant in my life. It, 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 almost, it almost seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, in, in your reaction to my question, that it is something you've thought of trying not to include in the work just because you know it gets brought that you know in, in, you know long after we're both gone historians are going to write about it <laughs> is it something you've tried not to do and just it doesn't work that way you mean tried not to do well is it something is it something <laughs> that you imagery of hair in it which right it no it doesn't all but you know it, you know so when when there are 30 years of violin cases and matisse paintings historians inevitably mine into the freudian and otherwise meaning thereof and and surely you because you've made so much work with so many other things in it you could decide oh okay i i i need to stop giving historians reasons to parse me i'm going oh, to oh yeah i don't think yeah else. i don't think to be honest i kind of, i'm very much engaged in a conversation in the in, in the kind of knowledge of like you know how my career has um, proceeded, I cannot control how people read the work or, for that matter, how critics or art historians view it. I can only work within the logic to a certain extent of how the work speaks to me in order to move forward. So I can't, or I I guess it's more importantly not for me not to engage in kind of hindsight or thinking ahead of how the work is perceived outside of myself as a way to proceed, because to me that's a losing battle. Lorna Simpson, thanks so much for the work, and thanks for talking with me. Thank you. This is great. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.